Somebody was supposed to come and read scripture, but uh, how about if I do that? Let's stand. We're in 2 Corinthians 7, and we're going to look at just verses 10 and 11, where it says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, and what readiness to see justice done. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how it guides us into the abundant life. This morning, I just also want to pray for Jim Houston, who went to Edmonton to get a liver transplant, but they sent him back because they didn't quite have the right match. They didn't feel confident. So we pray, Lord, that that uh, that surgery would take place successfully soon. And we pray for Chris and Doris's young grandson, who is having heart surgery this week. And we just pray for a complete, successful surgery there. And uh, that you would just really be with the whole family during this time. Again, Lord, thank you for your word. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing in the life of Joseph. We'll uh, conclude next week. A couple of drinking buddies were driving home from the bar and they'd had a little too much. On the way, there was a horrific accident. The passenger was killed instantly. The undesignated driver lay in the hospital in intensive care for many weeks. But over time, he improved and finally he was released and all his wounds eventually healed all the physical ones. But his soul was still in critical condition. The guilt was overwhelming. He had trouble coping with life. He quit university. He couldn't keep a job. His life was spiraling out of control. And obviously he went into hiding. What he feared the most was facing the grieving parents of his best friend. But somehow they found him. And so he braced himself for the worst. Instead, they wanted to give him something. Their son's most prized possession, a football trophy. They said it was symbolic to remind him that they had truly forgiven him. And he could see that they meant it. And he said, I found in their eyes the permission to be the person I could have been if that accident had never happened. They gave me the permission to be that person. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. It is the most effective change agent there is. It's like like being born again. And probably all of us have experienced the amazing grace of God's forgiveness, but with mixed results. 
For some, it is a life-transforming experience because they really take it to heart. But for others, it doesn't seem to make that much difference. Because you can be forgiven and then continue to do the same thing over and over again. 2 Peter 2.22 says, A sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. You see, forgiveness is most effective when it includes repentance. And that's what Paul talks about here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. It's not enough just to have sorrow over sin. Judas wept, and then he went out and he hanged himself. Because worldly sorrow leads to despair and death. And that's what Joseph's brothers had after they encountered the new governor of Egypt. Although Joseph had already forgiven them in his heart, he didn't dispense it immediately like just another sack of grain. Last time we saw how he first aroused their guilty conscience. He kept Simeon behind and sent them home and said, I won't release your brother until you bring me your youngest brother, Benjamin. <laughs> How could they do that? How could they possibly do that? And they said to one another, Surely we are being punished. This is chapter 42, verse 21. Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. That's worldly sorrow. It is totally self-focused. I feel sorry for myself because I now have to suffer the consequences for what I've done. When I was involved in a chaplaincy program at the Drumheller Penitentiary, I, I saw this all the time. Everyone was upset that they got caught, that they were being punished, no one was concerned about how much their victims had suffered. That's worldly sorrow. And then something supernatural happened. A revival broke out in the Drumheller Penitentiary, and all of that changed. It's amazing to see a bunch of tough guys, gang members, crying genuinely sorry for what their sins did to others. It's powerful. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Joseph is attempting to lead his brothers from worldly sorrow to the place where they are ready to be given the permission to be the men they could have been if they had never sold their brother into slavery. And to bring them to that place, Joseph has them experience a series of unfortunate events. Chapter 42, verse 25. Joseph gave orders to fill their sacks with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. It says in 27, at the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw the silver in the mouth of the sack, and their hearts sank. And they turned to each other, trembling, and said, What is it that God has done to us? 
So they head back home and tell their father the bad news. We just lost another son. But if we want to get him back, we're going to have to bring Benjamin with us next time. So when the food runs out, they return to Egypt with Benjamin, even though Jacob did not want to let him go. And they also brought gifts to make up for the silver that was in their sack. Chapter 43, verse 15. So the men took the gifts and doubled the amount of silver and Benjamin also. And they hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare dinner. They are to eat with me at noon. Verse 18, now the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought, we were brought here because of the silver that was put back into our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. That's worldly sorrow. It's the fear. It's the despair. Everything is going wrong. A guilty conscience can misinterpret every gesture of goodwill as an act of aggression. I don't like this. This is, this is some kind of a trap. All of their deflector shields were still up. Why are we being treated like this? Verse 19, So they went up to Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house. Please, sir, they said, we came down here the first time to buy food, but at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks and each of us found his silver, the exact weight, in the mouth of his sack. So we brought it back with us. And we've also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put our silver in our sacks. See, that was their problem right there. You could summarize their theology in four words. We don't know who. We don't know who. We, we don't know who God was or what he's up to. Divine providence left them totally perplexed. They were functionally agnostic. We don't know who or why or how come. Verse 23, It's all right, he said. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your Father has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. Then he brought Simeon out to them. It's interesting that a heathen has to enlighten them as to the ways of God. Hey guys, it's all good. Don't you know God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Verse 24, the steward took the men into Joseph's house, gave them water to wash their feet and provided fodder for their donkeys. 26, home, they presented him with the gifts they had brought into the house and they bowed down before him to the ground. Verse 28 says they bowed low to pay him honor. They keep bowing, which reminds us of something. And as he looked about, he saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, and he asked, is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep, and he went into his private room and he wept there. Oh, if only his brothers had known what was happening behind the scenes. I wonder if, if God grieves like this, longing to give us every spiritual blessing, but he's, 
He's forced to hold back because we're not ready to receive it yet. Joseph was not a predator seeking to harm them. His heart was so filled with love, it overflowed and poured out his tears. It says in verse 31, after he'd washed his face, he came out and controlling himself said, serve the food. Verse 33, the men had been seated before him in order of their ages from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else. Well, there it is again. That's what caused all the trouble in the first place. Favoritism. Joseph has staged a dramatic reenactment of an unsolved mystery. So now there's another brother they have to get rid of. Were the wolves howling in the cellars of their soul again? To borrow Helmut Tielicke's phrase. Well, the interesting thing is this time there's no sign of envy. It says, so they feasted and drank freely with him. They were having a great time. So they've learned a lot. But it was now time for the final exam. Chapter 44, verse 1. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the man's sack with as much food as he can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. So off they went. And just after they left the city, they noticed a posse on their trail. Is there a problem, officer? You think we stole your master's cup? That's impossible. We would never do that. But if you find it, well, go right ahead and punish the guilty party. Just let the rest of us go free. Verse 10, very well then, he said, let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave and the rest of you will be free from blame. We have a deal. So one by one, they searched the sacks. And it says in verse 12, the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Well, that's good. That solves our problem. Now we can get rid of Benji also. Benjamin, how could you do this to us? Look at the trouble you got us into. It's all your fault. You see, in a dysfunctional family, it's survival of the fittest. So Benjamin was expendable. Well, officer, you now have the perpetrator. Can we go? And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this, they tore their clothes. The shock was like being hit by a taser. So they were taken back to Joseph. What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who is found to have the cup. Now they realize God has been at work in these unfortunate events exposing their guilt. God has uncovered your servant's guilt. Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who is found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. 
You're free to go, travel safe. This is one of those moments that just hangs in time and space as if someone pushed the pause button when the past, the present, and the future just merge into one event. They were back at the beginning, forced with the same choice. Would they sacrifice Benjamin for their own personal benefit? Would they write him off as a business expense? Will they treat Benjamin as they had treated Joseph? Would they do it again? This was the decisive moment just before the point of no return. Well, Judah again addresses the court, verse 30. So now if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray hair of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Their first thought was of what this would do to their father. It's going to destroy him. Last time, they didn't care about their father's feelings. They watched him grieve for Joseph and said nothing. This is going to kill him. Now we're getting somewhere. This is what repentance looks like. It's when you stop feeling sorry for yourself and you experience sorrow for how you've hurt others. We can't abandon Benjamin to a life of slavery because because that's what we did to Joseph. Oh God, what have we done? You know, this is exactly what our culture tries to prevent. We have got all of this secular psychology and self-help ideology that provides us with so many alternatives to repentance. They prescribe all kinds of emotional opioids to make us feel good about ourselves. We're not supposed to feel any guilt because they think guilt is a form of mental illness. I don't have to change. I'm fine just the way I am. Lady Gaga sings defiantly, we were born this way. Well, yeah, I agree. And that's exactly why Jesus said you have to be born again. Almost everything that you hear is meant to prevent you from reaching the point of repentance. Because that's the last thing the enemy will ever concede. They will fight against this with every fiber of their being. And so will we. Our flesh does not want to do that. That's the last thing our flesh will ever agree to. You see, Satan doesn't mind if you get religious. There are millions of people who spend their lives running religious errands without ever running into God. Religion is probably the most popular alternative to repentance, especially when you feel satisfied with all the good works you've done. Why do we need to repent? We're, we're, on, we're doing all the right things with regards to climate change and abortion and gay rights and native rights and carbon tax. We recycle. We're gluten-free. We're doing all the right stuff. 
The world, the flesh, and the devil will do everything they can to prevent you from reaching the point of repentance. That's the last thing they will concede. But with God, that's the very first order of business. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. And you know, repentance hurts. It hurts to remember our worst mistakes. We don't like to think about that. True repentance always hurts at first. Because before God can change our hearts, He has to break our hearts. And that hurts. But that's what you call good grief. And Judah was at the breaking point. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the, the boy. And let, your, let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father? If the boy is not with me, no, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Judah, are you serious? You're willing to sacrifice your life for your brother? Well, I, I guess I am. I don't know where that came from. But I'll take Benjamin's place. In fact, I have to do this. Which means they were now ready. Chapter 45, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. He cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Can you imagine the shock? Oh no, this is Joseph. We are busted. We are doomed, ruined. This is the worst day ever. He said, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Wow, he's had 20 years to plan revenge. After what we did to him, what is he going to do to us? Well, what he's going to do is forgive you because you haven't come to Egypt to get grain. You've come to receive grace. And now, do not be distressed, verse 5. And do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Do not be distressed. Do not be angry. That's what godly sorrow looks like. Once we've repented, we heal. We totally heal. And we have permission to live without condemnation, without shame, and without regret. Do not be distressed. 
and do not be angry with yourselves. Repentance is full restoration. It's what the prodigal received when he returned home. And the father put a ring on his finger and a robe on his back and killed a fatted calf. Forgiveness is not time off for good behavior. It's not a parole. I'm watching you. Forgiveness is a full pardon. Isaiah 43, 25 says, When God forgives us, he remembers our sin for about a month more. No more. No more. He immediately removes that from the record. And and Paul says in Colossians 3.13, we are to forgive like that. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So that, that means when you forgive someone, you treat them as if that sin had never happened. If you keep bringing it up, then you really haven't forgiven. In fact, what you become then is a blackmailer. If you keep bringing it up, then you are a blackmailer. Because when you forgive someone, it's gone. You have dropped all charges. All subpoenas are cancelled. You see, it's through Jesus Christ that all our debts are paid. So there's no balance owing. In fact, we have a credit that is impossible to count because of his forgiveness. And that is how we forgive others. This is what Paul experienced. You know, he was a serial killer. He'd been the point man in the persecution of the Christian church. He hated the followers of that fraud, Jesus Christ, with all his heart. And so he continued to try to destroy the church until Christ confronted him and hurt him. Paul was blinded. But through that encounter, he was saved. And he became a new creation. He was born again. And it was wonderful, except for the guilt. No. Can you imagine how the memory of his sins could continue to torment him? In his daydreams, he could see the horizons dotted with the tombstones of his victims. Paul should have been a nervous wreck overcome by guilt, but he wasn't. Free from guilt, he was bold, dynamic, overflowing with enthusiasm, giving himself fully to the work of the Lord because he knew in the Lord his labor would never be in vain. That's because Paul had experienced the full impact of godly sorrow and it left no regret. And that's kind of my story too, with a lot less drama and violence. And Satan likes to remind me of my past. God never does, but Satan wants to remind me of my past. But I have an antidote. I got some good advice many years ago. Someone said to me, next time Satan reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. Checkmate. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. That's good grief. You now have God's permission to live an abundant life. Father, we 
We don't do it like that. We just can't comprehend that because it's so different than the way things are done in this world where every transgression is remembered and replayed and put on social media and it's just there for all time. But we thank you that you're a God who wipes the record clean so that we can die to sin and can be raised to a new life, born again through Jesus Christ to live the life that you've called us to live. Thank you, Lord, for being able to cleanse us and give us a new heart and new hope, a hope that does not disappoint. Thank you for all we have through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.